Hello. This is the Transformation of European Politics series. My name is Tiger Bushadi, and I am a political scientist at the University of Zurich. In this podcast series, I talk to other political scientists about a publication of theirs that can help us better understand the transformation of European politics in the past 20 years. We link these academic works to broader debates within political science, but also discuss how they relate to current political developments. In this episode, Tariq will for once not be asking the questions, but answering them. And I have the pleasure of talking to him. I am Celia Heusermann, a political scientist at the University of Zurich. I am a colleague of Tariq, who is Assistant Professor of Direct Democracy and Political Participation at our department. Our conversation will focus on party strategies and their electoral consequences, both on the left and on the right. We start by discussing the article The Electoral Appeal of Party Strategies in Post-Industrial Societies, When Can the Mainstream Left Succeed?, which was published in the Journal of Politics in 2019. The article is co-authored with Markus Wagner. In this article, the authors show that mainstream left parties, such as social democratic parties, are likely to improve their electoral performance if they emphasize the expansion of investments in the economy and the welfare state. The success of this strategy, however, is not straightforward, but it is conditional on also emphasizing culturally liberal positions and on trade unions not undermining this programmatic focus. Tariq and I will talk about these strategic choices and trade-offs in the next 45 minutes and relate them to the causes for the electoral decline of the mainstream left parties and to the strategic choices mainstream right parties face. For more information about Tariq and his research, you can follow him on Twitter or visit his website. Hello Tariq, welcome to the podcast. Hello Celia. So today we talk about your article with Markus Wagner on the electoral payoffs of programmatic choices by mainstream parties. And later we will also talk more generally about context and related questions to this article. But first, I want to ask you about the context of this particular article and also the motivation. What uh, made you write that article? Mm -hmm. So when we started working on the article, uh, we noticed a discrepancy in the between the public discourse and the research on social democratic parties, really. So Marcus and I came together just out of an interest of party competition, especially competition between mainstream and niche parties. And what we noticed then for social democratic parties was that the public discourse strongly focused on social democracy having lost working class voters. And that seemed at odds to to us with the research that has been done on social democratic parties, work by Herbert Kitchell, but also your work with Jane Gingrich, where we thought, actually what social science work shows is this important role of educated middle-class voters. And they seem to be absent in the broader discussion on the current crisis of social democratic parties. And the second thing that we realized is that there's actually very little, especially comparative research that has the vote shares or just the, the electoral support of social democratic parties as the dependent variable and re analyzes this in, in relation to the party strategies. So that's what we then um, started doing in the project. And I think we started the beginning of 2016. And basically, while we were working on this project, um, 
this narrative that we were trying to counter became stronger and stronger. So we were also more motivated um, to, to write this paper also as a contribution to the public discourse. Mm -hmm. um, maybe if we focus now more narrowly on, on the argument uh, that you look at in the paper, uh, it's true that in the public discourse, there is oftentimes this question, what should the mainstream left do in order to um, to increase uh, electoral vote shares, etc. And a lot of that discourse uh, argues uh, that uh, social democrats should go back to their roots, uh, emphasize social policy, attract workers by either being more socialist or more authoritarian. And your findings indeed show something very different. Um, and they show that the best chances are um, are when these parties uh, make very different programmatic choices. Can you summarize for us briefly what you find? Mm -hmm. So I think the first important point is that social structures have changed in all advanced capitalist societies, and they're still constantly changing, which means on the one hand, of course, we have a shrinking, especially we have a shrinking industrial working class. And this is often seen as this core group of social democrats. Also, the people who are in the working class now are, of course, fundamentally different from the 1960s. The working class is more female, often has so-called migration background or are non-white. Um, so in my opinion, very often the, the debate that focuses on the working class really has a completely different image in their head of what the working class is. What we do in the, in the paper is we largely focus on a different group. And this is uh, the, you could call the educated middle class, sociocultural and other professionals um, who we think um, we know are a, a growing group. And we think are the most important group for social democratic parties to appeal to in line with many other research um, in, in that, in that regard. And what we do then is we ask ourselves, what are the policy positions that social democratic parties need to offer to appeal to this group? And I think we combine two things there. First, we, again, building on your work with Herbert Kitchell, Tanz-Peter Krisi and others, we argue that one important dimension in terms of the economic policy offer is one that uh, focuses on investment versus consumption and makes a stronger offer in regard to investment. This means investment policies, for example, child care, all the policies that are associated with uh, human capital formation, education. Um, and th emphasizing this instead of, let's say, more traditional social policies, unemployment insurance, uh, traditional pensions, and these things... And we, we argue that emphasizing investment and overconsumption should help to appeal uh, to educated middle class voters on the economic dimension. We then make a second point and say, of course, we know by now um, political competition does not only happen on, the on an economic dimension. So we need to ask on a second, more cultural dimension that includes questions of just generally the organization of societies, but also questions like immigration, for example, uh, what do these educated middle-class voters want? And there it is that they prefer more open and liberal policies. And so our expectation is that this combination should actually be beneficial for social democratic parties. So very much the opposite of what is being discussed in the uh, in the public discourse very often. And we then also find empirical support for this. And we find that, A, when social democratic parties are combining these types of policies, they 
perform better in, they just have higher vote shares. And second, we can also show at the micro level that it is that combination that actually appeals to exactly that group of um, professional voters. I should say maybe one additional thing. We don't see this as policy advice for social democratic parties in every type of context. Elections are very different and um, the policy choices are only one part of the, of the bundle of an offer. So we look at a longer time series at many countries. So this is really the structural element of it. So this is not to say that we give an advice how every social democratic party should act. But I think what we show is that an advice that is always given and that is exactly the opposite of what we find become more authoritarian, nationalist and back to 1970s social policies that we, we would expect that this certainly should not be an, a successful strategy. Mm -hmm. um, I want to uh, come back uh, uh, a little bit again on this interaction effect that you highlight very much in the article um, between emphasis on investment when it comes to economic uh, policies and uh, emphasis on cultural liberalism when it comes to second dimension policies. Why is this combination so important? And um, I'm asking that because one could read the article as saying the, the social democrats have to, or they, they should consider becoming more like the greens. Um, is, is, is that an unfair reading of the article or is it this combination of economic and cultural positions that, that is something that you think is distinctive for, um, appealing to social democratic voters? Mm -hmm. Um, yes, very often that is the reaction. Are you just saying that, uh, social democratic parties should become like the Greens? Um, I think in many countries at the moment, social democratic parties were, would be in a better position if they were the Greens. I think the Greens are in a better position than many social democratic parties at the moment. But still, the social democratic parties won't be the Greens. And there are many, many differences, even if you take these policy positions. Um, so I think what's important is first is that we're not saying there is a winning equilibrium solution. Um, or like Herbert Kitchell said it in this podcast last week, um, there's no free lunch. So it's not that you will pick one strategy and um, that will just be the winning strategy. It's always based on trade-offs. So these strategies are based on trade-offs. And our argument is that this is, there's a growing part of the electorate that without them, social democratic parties will become pretty much meaningless. So we need to ask ourselves, what do these voters want? And I think it is a combination between these two policies um, that is very important there. This is then more a necessary condition, right? This doesn't mean that if social democratic parties do this, then they will uh, get 40% of the vote again, not at all. But I think if they do not make these offers to these groups, then um, they will become electorally increasingly irrelevant. And I think this also means that it's not only these two issue bundles. I think this can also change. And we have at the moment, we have a large global protest against racism. So again, these issues can, um, can the issues can change, but and the question should always be, what does an educated middle class want? Because without appealing to them, social democratic parties will be electorally doomed. Maybe one thing, this does not mean that they should forget about the working class. Um, it is also not the case that the working class is consistently authoritarian. 
Not at all, actually. Um, there are many people in the working class with liberal attitudes. Again, the, the working class is not only white and male. And also the investment consumption dis distinction. And there you are much more the expert than I am. But it's not the case that investment policies are bad for the working class per se. It's just a different approach on how to generate social equality through an, a social policy and economic policies. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think it's important for the article to rec to to see that you you recognize and acknowledge these trade-offs that are involved in the programmatic choices. But but on this, I mean, uh, it's true. Last week you um, had this conversation with Herbert Kitschel. He distinguished between um, different programmatic strategies social democrats can choose. Um, uh, what he calls outbound strategies, so very clearly distinctive profiled uh, strategies, such as the one that you um, mentioned here, more culturally liberal, more investment oriented. Other outbound strategies could be uh, welfare chauvinism. Or, and then on the other hand, um, inbound strategies, which are more moderate, centrist, etc. And these outbound strategies in particular, of course, involve trade-offs. So um, I also read your argument as saying on balance, then uh, the electoral uh, consequences may be um, more beneficial to social democratic parties than when it comes to other outbound strategies. But what is the trade-off here? So what is the what is the price of uh, such a programmatic profile appealing to investment and cultural liberalism? Mm -hmm. The risk that is involved, of course, is that a, a group that made up the um, core constituency of social democratic parties, um, that is the The, the working class, it is less educated voters, people with more specific skills. Um, so not the sociocultural professionals, but a type of, you know, lower middle class, working class, even a type of part of the, the petit bourgeoisie, maybe they uh, will be less in favor of these policies. That's, a, uh, that's the expectation. Again, there's a large literature that shows that these preferences are dependent on your position in the labor market. Um, so if we think of the traditional labor market insider um, that is unionized, then this person, often also male person, will see less benefits in um, an investment-oriented um, economic policy and might, might also especially not care as much about, let's say, gender equality or environmental issues, for example. And then, of course, there's a risk that these voters will turn their back on social democratic parties. Maybe you can elaborate a little on the role of unions because it's an important aspect in your argument and findings as well. Mm -hmm. So what we argue is that this strategy that combines more investment-oriented policies, or especially the focus on investment versus consumption, um, that will be less successful when unions can mobilize against these policy shifts. So we should expect that unions, especially organized workers themselves, um, have a larger interest in more consumption-oriented policies. There are several reasons for this. Um, and so when unions won't be necessarily happy with this shift toward investment, although also unions are changing, right? We're looking at a long time period um, starting in 1975. But the argument there is that when unions can mobilize against um, these shifts, then those strategies should be less successful because social democratic parties will lose more working class voters. Again, and I think this is important, we 
do not at all want to say that unions are bad for social democracy. Not at all, or for social democratic parties. We can show consistently people who are in unions are more likely to vote for social democratic parties. They are less likely to vote for radical right parties. So overall, unions have a positive effect. What we argue is that it strong unions make this strategy that combines investment-oriented policies with more open, uh, second-dimension policies to appeal to educated middle-class voters. This strategy will be less successful because um, the risk of losing working-class voters becomes higher. I think this also, there's much research to be done on this. I think we have a very crude measure of this, and I think it would be, of course, be interesting to have specific information in any, in, for every case, what unions did exactly in reaction and then how this affected um, social democratic parties. Mm -hmm. um, now I want to ask you about um, the mainstream, the programmatic orientation of the mainstream left and what it implies based on two aspects that Jane Gingrich and Tom O'Grady mentioned in their conversations with you. Um, and it is about what, what the, the mainstream left or social democracy is really about. What they mentioned is that kind of the, the, the DNA of the social democracy to some extent is on the one hand, this being a, a force of a coalition formation, cross-class coalition formation and compromising. On the other hand, being a force that structurally over time improves life conditions of the low skilled and lower income classes. Um, to what extent now, if a, if a, if a social democratic strategy is, uh, uh, if a social democratic party is, um, as rational as possible in maximizing vote shares in order to then implement the policies that we just talk about, um, to what extent is there, is there a price with regard to these two, um, aspects that, uh, many scholars and also voters consider essential to the social democratic movement? Mm -hmm. I think there's an excellent question. So basically, how do you remain a, a, an ideological core of what social democracy means and still are, act as a, a rational actor that maximizes votes. And I think if we look at the third way, I think it's fair to say that this was an electorally very successful strategies, strategy, that it also attempted to implement some principles uh, of social democracy in a context where this was difficult. But at the end of the day, people were left with the strong impression that this somehow violated the core of what being social democratic, what being left means. And I think this is a different, ch difficult challenge for social democratic parties because being progressive means necessarily that you always need to adapt to different socioeconomic circumstances, right? So the idea of democratic socialism that social democracy was built on, this utopia, um, is one that is inherently progressive. And in two regards, one is from that time, democracy, just the idea of democracy, of full suffrage, for example, that was already a pro progressive ideal. People didn't have that when they formulated the idea. And the second one then, of course, is also socialism. So there is in the, right, at, at the beginning of social democracy, 
there is a progressive ideal on, I would say, both dimensions. The one is the economic one, that is socialism. And the second is on the cultural dimension, on the how do we organize societies, is the idea of democracy. So then after full suffrage was established, the question was, what then is the social democratic promise on that second dimension? And so this always needed to change. And what social democratic parties have not done since the third way is try to formulate a social democratic vision for the next 50 years. What does this idea of this utopia of democratic socialism mean for the world of today? And I would always argue this, of course, needs to include progressive values on questions of gender equality, LGBT rights, but also environmentalism. All of these questions, because this is the, this is the social democratic promise. If this is, if this is not part of the equation, then you're not social democratic anymore. And in that regard, social democratic parties and Herbert Kitchell also mentioned this on the podcast a bit. They really missed the opportunity to integrate, um, the env environmental movement, which was one that very much formulated a, new idea of a progressive society. And of course, it took a while, but now, at least until a couple of months ago, it was really one of the main dominant topics in politics in advanced capitalist societies. And so I think it's difficult to find these issues for social democracy, and it might take a long time for them to become the dominant issue of political context. But I think as a progressive party, you do, progressive party, you don't have a choice, but try and do that. And very often advice that is given to social democratic parties is really short lived. And very often, for example, in the UK, there was this deba debate about trans rights. And people kept saying, why is labor focusing on this? No one cares about this. Well, maybe this is true right now, but it's the same thing that people said about environmental issues 20 years ago. And so this is the challenge for progressive parties, I think. Mm -hmm. um, that, of course, brings us to the role of, of agency, right? The, um, the article that we start this discussion with is very much based on programmatic choices that are um, that, that have strong agencies or there's a choice to be made. You can you can make mistakes or do the right thing, etc. And I would like to ask you about the, about the role of uh, agency for political parties nowadays. Again, going back to uh, what you just mentioned, Herbert Kitchell also explained how the strategic choices and dilemmas came up for social democratic parties, not five years ago or 10 years ago, but in the, in, in the 1980s with the emergence of uh, the new social movements on the left. And at that point, and that was his 94 book, of course, at that point, social democratic parties made very different choices. Some of them integrated these new social movements. Others remained very much more um, um, oriented towards their traditional claims and and uh, constituencies, etc. Um, so now we talk about the same choices to be made uh, 20, 30 years later. What is the role of time in assessing the leeway for agencies? Are there parties uh, for which the, the ship has sailed? Um, or uh, what can you tell based on your research on, on, on the leeway that parties have of reinventing themselves 
um, even when party competition or the reconfiguration of party competition has already advanced quite uh, a lot. Mm -hmm. I think there are actually two questions in that that I think are very important to answer. The first is, what can parties do? And the second is, when they do something strategically, um, when will the payoff set in? Or when is the right moment to actually evaluate if a strategy was successful or not. And I think what we do very often and what we also do in this paper is we look at immediate trade-offs. And I think something that Herbert Kishel usually emphasizes is, well, maybe these things until they play out, the, the, these types of realignments, that might take a decade or two more than just really looking at these effects in one election. I think parties have the potential to shape public opinion, to shape discourse. So I think they're not trapped in the in the social structures that they are part of so i i think in this debate i'm somewhat more in in, in the middle between people we had on this podcast i think social social structures are definitely a very important determinant of what parties can do but i do think they have fundamental agency and I also think the agency is more than just salient so i think they can shape in the medium term what people want from politics and I think then it is what is important or difficult for political parties is that they, of course, lived in these uh, in these short-term trade-off worlds, right? One election is very decisive how they think about strategies, but uh, these developments take more time. And I think you see at the moment, if you look at German social democrats, how the the policy choices of the last twenty years, at least have now very negative consequences. And one thing you can look at is, is, is age di distributions, right? Um, who still votes for social democratic parties depending on age or more, more which cohorts still vote for social democratic parties? And we just saw that in the European Parliament election last year, German social democrats received support of below 5%, I think, under for, for, for under 30-year-olds, especially if you also take into account... Um, abstention. So the, in, in, in many countries, really the electorate of social democratic parties now is really, really old. And act, literally the electorate of social democratic parties is dying out in many countries. Losing voters to um, death is a main source of how they lose voters in some countries. In the Netherlands, the electorate of the PVDA, so the Labour Party, is as old as that of the Pensioners Party. So I think there you really see the, the long-term consequences. And if you do not have a strategy that appeals to younger voters who are not as important an electoral group right now because it's not a large share of the electorate, but if you don't build these types of relations with younger people, then um, you're doomed in the medium term. Mm -hmm. um this brings us, of course, to the causes of the decline of the mainstream left vote shares. Um, the article that we started with is very much on what they can do prospectively or, or what, the, what kind of strategic choices they have to make prospectively. Um, but of course, you have worked extensively also on the causes of um, the decline or of the electoral performance of mainstream and uh, more radical parties. Um, and th there are 
two main arguments, I would say, in the literature of why mainstream left parties have generally across the board lost electoral vote shares. Um, one of them is that they have become too economically centrist or, or even move too, too much towards the right. And the other is that they have become too culturally progressive um, and thereby alienated uh, voters. Um, you are skeptical of both of these uh, explanations. Why is that? Mm -hmm. Yes. So we are, these are, as you said, the dominant narratives, one economic and one more culturally oriented. It's interesting because uh, Thomas Piketty in his new book, again, makes these two narratives for, for social democratic decline. I think the evidence for both is pretty weak. Um, so for the, for the economic narrative, the idea is right during the period of the third way of new labor, social democratic parties became too centrist. And because of this, they lost the working class vote. I think there are a couple of empirical facts that speak against this idea. Um, the first is if we look at which voters social democratic parties lost in the 2000s, so the, the years that followed the, this period, A, these voters were largely centrist voters. So this is the biggest block they lost were centrist voters themselves in ideological terms. Second, where they went is mostly to parties of the mainstream right. So if the reason were that social democratic parties have become too centrist, then why did they lose centrist voters to the main mainstream right? Um, so that's, I think, one fact that speaks against the economic narrative. Another one is, for example, if you look at the Swiss Socialist Party, the, this is one party that never made this, uh, this third way turn. Uh, one, um, one Swiss politician once told me the, the reason why the SPD is doing so, so poorly now is that they've been basically a traitor in the class struggle. This is really an idea that's quite prominent in, in, in Swiss social democracy, I feel. So they never made the third way turn. But they too have lost large shares um, of their uh, of their working class vote. So I think that that can be um, that can be the full explanation at least. The second for the cultural one, again the idea then very often is they're too culturally progressive, and because of this they have mainly lost votes to the to the radical right. But you could also say they have lost some to the to the mainstream right. First, uh, very few voters leave social democratic parties for radical right parties. That's just a myth. Um, this direct exchange does, does not happen a lot. In the 2010s, in contrast, really social democratic parties lost most of their voters to more left libertarian progressive parties. Second, if we look at the electorate of social democratic parties when they were doing very well electorally in the two, early 2000s, late 1990s, and you can look at the immigration preferences of these voters. These voters were very pro-immigration. So again, by losing anti-immigration voters, we cannot explain um, the decline of social democratic parties. And third, what we also find is that immigration attitudes are actually quite a quite weak predictor for choosing between the mainstream left and the mainstream right. So if in order to explain this competition, and um, that still is there's the most traffic really for these parties. Um, then you, we need to focus on other things, but these, uh, but these cultural factors. Mm -hmm. So, so you think the main, um, the most important empirical 
um, evidence we have to assess these different arguments is indeed kind of um, uh, movements or shifts of voters uh, between different parties. Uh, this is why you look a lot on on um, these patterns of uh, where voters go, who leaves the parties, where do they win votes from. Yes, so I think that is a, that is important empirical source that we have to um, answer this question, right? We can, we of course can't go back and survey people uh, and ask why did you leave social democratic parties and turn to other parties. We unfortunately also don't have a lot of panel studies that would allow us to really track um, these movements in a way uh, that so we get a full picture. So by, for example, asking what other parties did they go to. This gives us some empirical evidence that we can use to explain um, what this kind of kind of backlash was and why. So I think this is one source that um, that we can use to to explain these questions. And this is something we're working on at the moment quite a lot and trying to um, explain the stream of voters. Then also with um, with specific variation in party positions, right? This is the next step of something that I haven't mentioned yet. But we can, of course, then also try to explain, not only describe these, these movements, but explain them with different types of party positions. Mm -hmm. Now, um, the, the evidence you mentioned on these voter movements, um, I think they, they provide really strong evidence against these um, these common narratives of um, positional mistakes uh, mainstream left parties have made and then uh, the negative consequences thereof. But if, if, um, if we believe this evidence against these explanations, why then? What is, what is the story why all mainstream left parties struggle so much um, electorally? And I think there are kind of three possible uh, lines of explanation out there. One is positional, really, that they take the wrong policy positions that do not resonate with the workers or with the voters that they are supposed to resonate with. It can be a saliency story that just the overall uh, context of uh, saliency of different topics is not in favor of uh, social Democrats uh, currently and somewhat beyond their control. Or then, um, you know, you mentioned before the intergenerational um, sociostructural um, story where new cohorts of voters are just socialized into a different party landscape and different party supply and thereby you have kind of a renewal of uh, constituencies. Where, where do you see um, the most promising explanations? So I have, an, I have an own narrative and then maybe I also have some additional factors that are interesting and also uh, have a bit more of a grounding in, in other types of uh, party competition research. So my own narrative is that social democratic parties made the wrong choice at two turns. The first one was the post, um, the post third way period that in many countries falls into a time where the economy was not doing very well. So we saw economic downturns in several countries, not only the, the world economic and financial crisis, but also in Germany, for example, already in the early 2000s, we actually had a quite strong economic downturn. And that was the case in, in, in many other countries too. So I think what happened there is really that social democratic parties had been governing in many European countries before for quite a while. The economy goes down. We know this is a, a pattern that is, is shown over and over again in, in, in political science. When the economy goes down, people vote 
parties in government out, called economic voting. Um, this is something we can observe very, very often. So I think that this is at least part of the story. Part of the story is simply that many social democratic parties govern while the economy was going down. And then people voted uh, other parties in, voted the mainstream right in. Um, also, the mainstream right that even even in the new labor period was very often still also seen as more competent on economic issues. Then what social democratic parties did is they told them, they started telling themselves, this is the, re the reason for this, the reason why we're losing is that we were too centrist on economic issues. And basically since then, They have been kind of muddling through. They have no clear economic agenda. The reference point still so often is these third way reforms. In Germany, people still talk about Schröder's agenda policies. And I always try to explain to them, we are now further away from the agenda 2010, which was uh, introduced in 2003. So we're time-wise now further away from this than those policies were away from German reunification. And now by a couple of years. And still, this is the main reference point for social democratic parties in terms of the economic policy choices they make. So they basically then never were able to formulate their own new economic uh, policy solutions. Um, and always because I think they were trapped in this idea of having lost, especially left working class voters because of their two centrist policies. So I think that was the wrong choice there at one, at one point. And then there's a second one. This is then more in the 2010s when certain cultural issues became more important. And there, again, social democratic parties still now seem to be very convinced um, that the reason why they're struggling is that they have lost too many, again, lower educated voters to the radical right because they're too progressive on The second dimension issues, and again, what they, who they actually lost were people with more progressive attitudes. So again, their choice was that in these questions, they were not progressive enough. They did not stand in, in, in any clear way uh, for a more open society, for really being uh, like a humane policy in terms of uh, accepting refugees. And also, of course, they missed the big issue uh, of environment as the, as this would be there as Catherine de Vries calls it high appropriability issue or Catherine de Vries in Sarajevo. I think that would have been their issue to um, appropriate much, much before this. Finally, I think the generational shift uh, also has something to do then with party activism. And I think this is something we often don't talk so much about. It's also something I don't do a lot of research on. It's really um, parties more as organizations. And here, again, the, the average age of a member of the German Social Democratic Party is over 60. If you don't have young, motivated activists, or if you don't have enough of them, you really cannot build these bridges into society that are fundamental for social democratic, for all progressive parties, especially, I think. So really, there's also no, no, sen no sense of what the young people want, if you want to say it like that. And I think there, um, this you can see, this is social democratic parties on social media, for example, and all these new changes, they really, they have such big problems adapting to it because of their type of membership and activist structure. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I now want to um, move uh, to the other side of the ideological spectrum, uh, to the right, because what is often overlooked, but, but you highlight that again and again in your publications and talks, is that it's not only the mainstream left and social democrats that have lost vote shares, basically in all countries over the past uh, 30, 40 years, but it's equally the case for mainstream right parties. So it's really uh, much more a story of mainstream parties losing um, while more radical left-wing, left libertarian parties win and more new right-wing nationalist parties win as well. Um, and that raises the question, to what extent are these uh, dilemmas and choices symmetric um, for mainstream right parties and mainstream left parties? What are the main challenges for mainstream right parties? Mm -hmm. I think there are symmetric challenges. First, one point that I would like to mention is maybe why we observe this less as a crisis has something to do with that it's often not one party in a country that really represents the mainstream right. right? And basically every Western European country, we have one main social democratic mainstream left party. And so we can very clearly see where was that party 40 years ago, where are they now? In On the mainstream right, in a way, in many countries that has been a kind of replacement on the mainstream right. So then this kind of means we overlook the crisis of those maybe single parties. So for example, if you think of the Netherlands, if you only focus on the Christian Democrats, then they have dramatically lost votes over the last 40, 50 years. But we still have a mainstream right party that has been now governing for a long time with the prime minister. That's the VVD. They used to be just like this you know, national liberal party um, that has become really the prime actor on the mainstream right. So things there, we sometimes overlook the crisis of many of these parties because other mainstream right parties have taken up that spot of being the leading party on the mainstream right. I think there's a similar dilemma for the mainstream right. There's one structural factor that is comparable to um, this institutional organizational decline is very important and that is um, secular secularization people churches as these organizations and really so christianity that on the one hand was this ideological root of uh, where many policy positions came from on the mainstream right but then also of course an organizational factor that um, that tied people to these parties the challenge that they have right now, I think, is one that is, 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 is increased by the success of the radical right. On the one hand, mainstream right parties that traditionally educated, um, business-oriented electorate, that's where they, that's where they come from. Uh, that's one main source of their, their success. Still, again, I think it's an important thing to say, there's an, a positive effect of education on voting for, voting for the mainstream right. It's still that more educated people are more right-wing voters. Again, this is something that Piketty, in my, in my opinion, um, overlooks and, and, and has some problems with his empirical analysis there. So these, this is, the coalition is, on the one hand, these more educated voters, and on the other hand, um, the petite bourgeoisie people who are less educated, but are still off, well off economically very often. And then now increasingly some share of um, the working class, especially those who have a bit more of um, authoritarian values. So the issue now with, uh, for ma mainstream right parties is 
how much can they appeal to the petty bourgeoisie, to national authoritarian voters, to this right-wing populist uh, group in the in the electorate without losing their educated, urban, business-minded uh, constituency? Immigration there, again, as on the left, is really a wedge issue. Um, so is European integration, for example, which uh, is not as salient in as immigration is in, in many European countries. But if it becomes salient, you can really see this divide. And I think Brexit is a great example for this. And really what served the, saved the Conservative Party there, in my opinion, is the electoral system in the UK. But there you could really see the divide. Um, Business-oriented people, liberal people who would usually vote for the Tories, they were not in favor of uh, of Brexit. Many of them were not. And all other of these policies that are associated with a more um, authoritarian turn of the Conservative Party, in the end, um, they didn't really have anywhere to go. And there were some periods in the in the polls when the, the Lib Dems were actually looking like the strongest party all of a, all of a sudden in this party system. But in the end, um, the electoral system did much to... Um, to keep also many of these voters with uh, with the Tories, also again helped, of course, by a, a very left wing Labour Party at this point in time. So I think that there's a uh, that is a trade off that you have on the mainstream right between this more um, business oriented, oftentimes quite liberal people on the second dimension, and this more uh, the the petty bourgeoisie, more uh, national authoritarian uh, oriented people. Mm -hmm. Um, one thing I was asking myself now, if you, you, you know, there seems to be, as you just explained, this symmetry between, um, the left where you have a trade off between kind of the old left voters or constituencies and the new left constituencies and on the right between the old right constituencies and the new right constituencies. And what you, what you argue on the left is that, um, kind of focusing more on the new left constituencies might be an electorally more uh, successful strategy. Whereas, um, I think you have shown that on the, on the right, if mainstream right parties, um, try to accommodate kind of the new, uh, more radical right electorate, it's not necessarily electorally successful. Um, does this have to do mainly with the, with the relative, the differences in the relative size of these groups or, or why, um, why is that not the same mechanism at play there? I think that's important that we need to distinguish uh, what the object is that we want to explain. Are we talking about uh, uh, the electoral success or the, the vote shares of um, that challenger party, so the radical right or the green party on the one hand, or are we talking about the, the vote shares of the mainstream party? And so what we show is that accommodating the radical right does not weaken the radical right. Um, so if you, if parties, mainstream left, mainstream right, become more authoritarian, become more anti-immigrant, this does not hurt the radical right, but actually leads to, um, on, on, on average, um, a better vote share for the radical right. Um, so there, the, you, you, you cannot weaken the radical right with that strategy. Especially for the mainstream right, that does not mean that this strategy is a bad strategy per se, because mobilizing, politicizing immigration is wor even worse for the mainstream left than it is for the mainstream right. So along the way, you might uh, strengthen the 
radical right, but you might also weaken the mainstream left. And so it could be a successful strategy still for the mainstream right to have this position on immigration without necessarily winning more voters over from 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 the mainstream uh, from the radical right. So it might be a winning strategy on the right uh, overall. How does this speak to this uh, potential trade-off that Herbert Kitschel mentioned that parties may face between maximizing their own vote share as a party within their um, ideological block, so to speak, and maximizing the vote share of the overall block? So uh, Herbert Kitschel, especially on the left, argues that social democrats may face a trade-off between kind of sacrificing themselves for the greater good of strengthening the left-wing block um, and uh, maximizing their own vote share, which then may come at uh, the cost of other left-wing uh, competitor parties. Um, on the right, um, as you just explained, there may not be such a trade-off because the overall uh, issue of uh, immigration and cultural conservatism may be a winning strategy overall. Um, so yes, I'm, I'm, I'm quite skeptical of this idea of uh, the sacrificing social demo democratic parties for the greater good of the left bloc for a couple of reasons. The first is something I just mentioned that when social democratic parties, so this is very often associated with the Danish strategy, right? And it worked out in a way in Denmark in the last election where because social democratic, the, the social democratic party there could win back a quite small share um, of voters from the right, then the, that coalition of the left was uh, big enough so they could govern. I'm skeptical of this for a couple of reasons. First of all, on average, again, we don't find that um, when mainstream left parties become more authoritarian nationalist, um, that this really helps to win back voters from, from the other camp. On the contrary, it, it actually strengthens the, the radical right challenger. I think this has something to do with this idea that's been voiced by Jean-Marie Le Pen already, that voters then will just go for the original. I think by these moves, you usually increase salience of issues like immigration, and then po parties will not vote for a social democratic party, no matter how, how right they are. Um, so I, I don't think you can... So the first assumption that you can strengthen uh, the block is already, I'm not sure how much empirical support there is for this. Second, even if we assume that there, it, it is electorally beneficial for the block, we need to think if that block really exists. So um, can, will is a coalition within the left block really then the most likely outcome of these movements? And I think that might be the case in Denmark, but I think there are several other countries where we've already seen um, that certain left libertarian green actors do not necessarily have to form the coalition with the mainstream left. But they are actually in government right now in Austria with um, the Greens are in government with the mainstream right. In in um, the Netherlands, the D66, which is this like centrist but strongly progressive on the second dimension party, supports a right-wing government. In Germany, we were very close to having a coalition between um, the mainstream right, a, the liberals, FDP, and the Greens. And sooner or later, we will have this in, at the national level in, in Germany too. So Greens can form coalitions with the mainstream right. So what might happen to the Social Democrats, they they sacrifice themselves for the great, greater good of the left bloc. 
but uh, they might wake up to a coalition that doesn't include them anymore. And also thirdly, um, I'm, what does it mean when we have a social democratic, more right-wing social democratic party, right? Do we then still have a left block if it includes a social democratic party that is right-wing? But I also always try to tell social democratic politicians, everything I just said may be wrong and you may actually strengthen the left block. But then in the medium term, the social democratic party will not be the leading party in that left block. They will become a niche party of a certain share of the, the petty bourgeoisie that is particularly old. So again, this will also be a shrinking electorate, um, but this they will not be the leading party of this left block then anymore. Mm-hmm. And on the right? Yes, I think on the right, it's, it's difficult. I think there a core question is, can the mainstream right form a coalition with the radical right? Are they willing to do this or not? If not, then of course, it's, it's very difficult for them in terms of the coalition options that they're left with. Um, and it's worked out well for, for some parties and for others, it hasn't worked out so well. And I think they really the trade-off is, um, how do you remain the dominant party? How do you not get eaten up by the radical right? As has happened in, in Italy, most clearly, but also in France, right? The mainstream right, um, does not seem to be the strongest party on the right anymore. So this, this is the, this is a similar question, right? How do you remain the dominant party in your block? And then the second question is, is, can you actually form a coalition? Are you willing to form a coalition with the radical right? There again, I see that, um, increasingly mainstream parties over time, many mainstream right parties seem to, um, decide that this is the only way they can still be electorally successful. Um, and I think that is, that that is a crucial factor there uh, if they're willing to do this or not. So, so indeed, uh, it seems that a lot will depend on whether we will continue to live in a world of party systems where you do have something like dominant parties per block or uh, kind of broker parties that uh, almost necessarily are part of governing condition, uh, coalitions or whether we move towards a, a world with party systems where you really have a fragmentation of um, uh, political parties and coalitional possibilities become much more varied and, and uncertain and difficult to predict. Um, we are already uh, quite far along in the conversation. I would like to um, slowly get to the final uh, questions. And one that I would like to ask you is, um, and that's of course very speculative right now, but whether you think that this uh, Corona situation that we live through and that is now uh, slowly becoming more controversially politicized, uh, whether it will more likely amplify the dynamics that we see or change them, the dynamics of party competition and electoral change? Mm -hmm. I think you can see that many of them, in many countries, the measures taken and the reaction to the measures taken really fall on the same dimension that has become so strongly politicized in the last years and here it even seems more like there is this like a, a a populist dimension if you want to call it like this there is a share of the electorate um, that really opposes especially all the the, the lockdown measures um, and they 
fall electorally into a camp that supports uh, the either the radical right or a or um, a share of conservative parties um, that has become more populist or in the last year as, as ex exemplified by Boris Johnson, for example. So I think there the the, the cleavage or the the new issue seems to fall on an existing cleavage. It seems to me that um, more educated voters are more in favor of these reactions, which I still think is interesting because they're not necessarily libertarian issues. I feel lockdown is a quite law and order measure to, um, to, to tackle these questions. And it's interesting that, that the, that the, the, um, that the left libertarians are agreeing to these measures so strongly. What I think is that also in the medium, medium term, I am worried that this is strengthening really a, a radical right sentiment, right? We closed borders. There's a generally, um, authoritarian sentiment. People are calling the police because their neighbors having too many people in their apartment. And so for me, this seems like there's a strong opportunity for an even increased Uh, politicized authoritarianism. And if we combine this then with a potential economic crisis, then um, my my fear is that this could strengthen uh, national authoritarian movements even more um, than we've seen in the past years. Mm -hmm. And finally, um, another Corona-related uh, question. Um, since we are recording this, uh, this conversation in a time of the global pandemic that is slowly, um, uh, where public life is slowly normalizing in some countries, but certainly not in, in all of them and, and still getting much worse in other countries, um, I would like to ask you for reading recommendations um, in this spe special time, both academic and non-academic. Mm -hmm. I had, of course, uh, some time to prepare my answer for this question. I'm not completely surprised by this question coming up. Um, so what I want to say, uh, I guess, three things. The first is that my political science recommendation is, of course, all the pieces of work that we've discussed on this podcast. So this is really, you can, you can very clearly see what I, my, my, my political science recommendations are by um, just following the podcast and seeing um, great scholars discuss really important pieces of work. So I want to make a recommendation about an article that I think is fundamentally important to understanding politics, which is not necessarily a political science article. And then also second, I'll make a recommendation for a piece of fiction. Um, the political, politically very relevant um, essay that I really want to recommend is an essay in The Atlantic by Tanahasi Coates, and it's called The First White President. And he wrote this in uh, 2017. And the first white president, of course, is uh, is Donald Trump. And it is an essay that makes an argument how Donald Trump really is the president of white supremacy, of the fundamental importance of whiteness for the electoral success of Donald Trump. All of these questions, of course, are now, again, just this week, again, so incredibly relevant, but they have been before. It's an article that is it's beautifully written. It's really, it's a very sad and, and, and angry article in one way, but it's really, it's a pleasure to listen to it or to read it. Um, 
And it also makes an argument against an economic reductionist argument about the left behind who supported Donald Trump and really is a, is historical in its, in showing also how, um, there's been a racist distinction between the white working class and black workers that goes back to the 19th century. So this is really, if you want to understand U.S. politics, I think this is a must read. Um, so I really recommend this essay by Tanahasi Coates uh, called the first white, uh, the first white president. My second reading recommendation then is um, a novel or maybe the autobiography in, in, in many regards by Stefan Zweig in German. It's called uh, Die Welt von Gestern. I think it translates to uh, The World of Yesterday, in which um, Stefan Zweig largely describes his, his own life, but with a particular focus on how the world was before... Um, before the First World War, and then before then the, the authoritarian, um, the national socialist turn in, in Europe. And I think what's so fascinating about this is, on the one hand, how much it shows the global or at least European integration that was part of the life in this period for a smaller group of people, but it was still so highly integrated. And it was very open and global, or at least European, um, in its outlook, but then also how this, of course, could very quickly change into um, this big phase of authoritarian nationalism and the Second World War then. Thank you very much, Tariq. Thank you for this conversation and thank you for the podcast overall. And thank you for taking over the role as a host today, Celia. <laughs>